Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod. What happened? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) No, nothing happened. I just like, now I, like whoever commented that thing just got in my head. And now I'm like, everyone can't understand like what my name is. But hold on, introduce my, and then my co-host is... My name, welcome. <laughs> now you threw me off. I'm Annie Kriegbaum. Welk. Welk. Oh, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Annie, I want to hear about your week. Well, I have some good news and I have some bad news. Start with the bad. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, the good news is I got it. You're vaccinated. <laughs> you were knocking on, on death's door. Let's bookend this conversation with both of us saying we highly recommend recommend and support vaccination. None of them are bad choices. Have microchips. You know, we've all done riskier things with our lives. I one time got into this like white van on the corner of 7th Avenue and I don't want, like we, bleakers. Nick, when are we not <laughs> I'm just saying, into- <laughs> as I was walking into that van, I was like, if this goes south, like my mom is going to get a phone call. Like your son was last seen, like getting into a white van on Bleecker and 7th Avenue. And I was like, I just think this is a bad thing. But anyway, yes, we've all done far riskier things. But yeah, I got the vaccine and I felt horrible for about 48 hours. It was worse than COVID. Doesn't that mean that like the more horrible you feel after the vaccine, I feel like it's a good thing. It's like the stronger your immune system. Because they're like trying to fight the antibody, you know, again, not a doctor. My immune system was just like really kicking ass then because I was shivering. I was making, you know, when you're so sick that you like make noises with your, you're not moaning, but you're like, and now you're better. No, I'm like ready to take on the world. You're back. You're feeling better. Do you want to hear what's going on with me? Uh, uh Uh-huh. So I am hard at work making merch for our baby. And so I've so far made, and you can do all, I mean, God bless the internet. You can do all this with the swipe of a keystroke. I made cocktail napkins for her Hebrew naming ceremony. I made mugs. I made sweatshirts. I made a pillar candle. I made like a sweat wicking cap, like a baseball cap. Um, the possibilities are endless. I just got this amazing piece of artwork that says Evelyn Elizabeth, which is her first and middle name. And it has like a little illustration of our family that my friend Eric Zindorf did. And I just thought like, why let this little illustration go to waste? And why don't I just like make a lot of merch? But now as I'm saying that it feels very self-involved. It's your way of prepping for baby, right? Yeah, exactly. Question, what is a Hebrew naming ceremony? A Hebrew naming ceremony is basically sort of like a welcome into the community of the Jewish people, typically for girls, because the boys would have gotten a circumcision ceremony, which is called a bris, in which they would have been given a Hebrew name. So this is a probably a more contemporary ceremony where they, it's basically, it's a rabbi or a cantor or someone who gives the name, which can be like a family name or just a name that you like in Hebrew. And then different people can give blessings. And So the rabbi doesn't get to choose the name. Funny you should ask. At first I thought it was like a divine inspiration situation where he would like look at her and be like, Rivka. <laughs> but no, he was like, he was like, what do you guys want to call her? 
Um, like anyone you want to like name her after. And my husband, VC's like a sweetheart, was like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the rabbi was like, okay, well, the Hebrew name for Ruth is Root. Root. And I was like, okay, so we're not doing oh. that. Oh. <laughs> so it's still a work in progress, but we're planning for that. She gets cuter every day. She has her first like thigh fold, like she's getting chubby, which is really cute. Adorable. And she has red hair. So... We're trying to figure out how that is genetically possible. If we have any geneticists or any really any sort of credentialed medical professional in the audience who knows how a baby could have red hair when neither of the genetic parents like the Punnett square have red hair or even like red hair in their families. Don't you know about Punnett squares? The what? Did you not go to junior high? No, I don't know what a Punnett square is. Punnett square is about dominant and recessive alleles. And alleles. Like blue eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dark hair, blue eyes, brown eyes. You can see like the possibilities that they would like produce. But but doesn't that require like someone in their family tree having a redhead? I mean, way back when, I think. It could be like that recessive that it was like five generations ago. Of course, yeah. As long as that recessive allele is hanging around. Okay. Well, so maybe that's it. Um, Can I tell you, you and my dad have a lot in common because he too, I think, I'm realizing was probably super annoying about having a kid as an ad man. Yeah, a fellow branding guy. He, I mean, you know, he did ads back when in the heyday of advertising <laughs> and he was a creative director. Yeah. And my birth announcement was greeting card style, whatever. And the front was like really big copy. And it said, our daughter is young, beautiful and has a great personality And then you open the card and it says, but we still had to pay a guy to take her out. (laughs) Get it? And then it was the doctor. It has, it's like the perfect (laughs) misogynistic, Mm -hmm. like three martini lunch kind of ad lingo that I I love. I always say my dad is like the dominant recessive allele, like 50% Don Draper. And 50% Steve Carell from The Office. Can you post the birth announcement on our Instagram? Yeah, sure. Why not? Okay, great. I was a really cute baby. I was really adorable. And then I had a real ugly (laughs) face. My problem as like a child was I um, really held on to like a mock turtleneck and a turtleneck and like a vest over a turtleneck. I don't know. I thought it was like very fashionable, but like I look back at pictures and it was really horrible. That's enough about us. Let's get into top stories. Let's do it. This one is for all of our beauty counter heads out there. The MLM company, which is not just an MLM company, but they do have like people who can sell beauty counter out of their homes, has just been valued at $1 billion. And that valuation comes on the heels of an investment from none other than the Carlisle Group, who if you remember back in 2017, acquired a 50% stake in the streetwear brand Supreme and then flipped it last year to VF Corp for a valuation of $2.1 billion. So anyway, long story short, Carlisle Group is now a majority stakeholder in Beauty Counter. What does this mean? They own most of Beauty Counter. (laughs) I think it probably means that Greg Renfro is going to take a nice vacation for a bit. Yeah. It's interesting because someone like the Carlisle Group, you know, is very strategic in who they invest in. It's not, they don't have the same idea that a lot of early stage venture capitalists have, which is throw a lot of small checks at a lot of small companies and see which one hits. The Carlisle Group, as evidenced by the Supreme 
transaction invested heavily in Supreme, 50% in 2017, which valued the comp- valued Supreme around a billion dollars, and then three years later sold it for double that. So like, if you can extrapolate from that transaction, you would think then that they have similar faith in Beauty Counter to be able to like at least double its valuation when it sells. They have quite a diverse portfolio, the Carlisle Group. They do. Can you tell me about it? <laughs> well, what were you going to say? <laughs> what are your favorite brands that they're invested in? My favorite Carlisle Group brands, oh, that's hard. That's like picking a favorite child. Let me tell you mine. It would have to be Bay Systems, which <laughs> BAE, they are the largest defense and security contractor in Europe. Um, they <laughs> provide supply chain support for Westinghouse's Eurofighter Typhoon, which is the world's most advanced combat aircraft. This is just another example of Carlisle Group, you know, investing in beauty counter combat aircraft, just keeping the populace safe from things that will will do them harm. And this is interesting. According to Wikipedia, I guess Carlisle was in Fahrenheit 9-11, the Michael Moore documentary, in which Michael Moore makes nine allegations concerning the Carlisle group. He talks about their connections with George H.W. Bush and James Baker, who was the Secretary of State. Anyway, so it's, you know, it's not a company you want to look too closely at the portfolio of because they also have an ownership stake in Duncan. Oh. So Carlisle Group seems complicated. Beauty Counter, as you mentioned, Annie, is very well known, not just for their MLM model, but also their lobbying of the government for greater oversight in the cosmetics industry. And Beauty Counter was also one of the first brands to come out with an extensive list of ingredients that they banned in all of their products. And maybe this was this, maybe Carlyle Group was like, we need good PR. Let's pick up Beauty Counter. They're up to good things. What's Supreme been up to lately? I feel like it's another collaboration every week. I'm like, guys. No, it literally, that's their business model. It is another collaboration every week. Feels like it used to be fewer and further between. Let's do an update on Supreme while we're here. Wheaties. They did a collaboration with Wheaties. That's cute. What do you think Supreme should make next, Nick? They've done a lipstick. They haven't done a palette. I mean, Tetris has made a fucking palette, for God's sakes. Name a thing and I'll tell you whether it has a palette. Ikea. Palette. True. Fuck, you got me on that one. I'll give you one. Family Matters. They don't have a palette? Not yet. <laughs> but like, just wait. There's going to be like Urkel oh, eyeshadow Oh, I just before. refreshed Instagram. ColourPop has just announced a new Family Matters. <laughs> <collab>. <laughs> we all need Urkel eyeshadow in Our our makeup lives. remover is like, did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> so for those who aren't like breathlessly refreshing Instagram to see what the latest sunscreen news is, Annie is. And can you report from the trenches on what's going on in sunscreen? Here's my thing about sunscreen Instagram and sunscreen truthers on the internet. They're always screaming at me. Okay. And I don't appreciate it. People get really hyped up about sunscreen. I mean, first there was Purito Gate, which was when the Purito sunscreen from Korea was found to have a much lower SPF than it claimed to have. And now all of our idols are falling down. So there was an Australian version of a Neutrogena sunscreen that was found to have like a much lower SPF rating than it had claimed to be and more relevant to our conversation in the US. The brand Crave Beauty, which was founded by a YouTuber named Leah Yu, they had a very popular sunscreen called Beats. Beats Shield. So let me just interrupt you there. 
I just want to complete my thought because I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit here. What I was going to say about sunscreen truthers yelling at people on the internet, there's a lot of like sunscreen shaming happening. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to my conversation with Katie Jane Hughes, but we touched on this a little bit because she was saying like she makes, you know, her videos where she's applying makeup on Instagram and she'll get people clawing from the comment section saying like, how dare you (laughs) do this look without applying sunscreen first? And, you know, that's not to say I don't wholeheartedly think people should be practicing safe sun care. And as someone with a following, albeit like very small, I do think it is a responsible thing to encourage overuse of sunscreen. But I will also caveat this by saying I don't think anybody should be made to feel ashamed for not using sunscreen. At this point, everyone's aware of the risks. Save your outrage for things that are actually worth outrage. There's two points I want to make here. One is there are other even more effective sun protection measures. Stay inside. (laughs) That's the jokey one. I agree with that. The other one is hats and don't laugh because I'm being serious, like long sleeve, lightweight, like linen shirts during the summer. Like they have clothing with SPF ratings now. Like there's way more effective and way more like attainable methods to protect yourself from the sun in conjunction with using sunscreen properly. And the bottom line that after our collective 25 years in this business that I think we've learned is that anything is better than nothing. All of this is to say, Annie, you're right, and I support you, and I hear you. Crave Beauty, which is the brand founded by Leah Yu, who is a famous YouTuber, and the brand has been like had like a really cultish community that it developed. Here's the thing, Nick. Don't get mad that I'm making you pump the brakes again. This product is not a sunscreen in the U.S. It does not use filters that are approved for labeling as a sunscreen in the U.S. But in, I guess in Korea, it has a sunscreen rating, an SPF rating? Yeah, in Korea, they can more explicitly say this is like a sunscreen. In the U.S., they still sold the same product. Here, I'm looking actually at a visual. I just found a visual on teenvogue.com that has both the U.S. product, which is labeled slightly differently side by side to the Korean version, which is labeled SPF 50 plus, PA plus sunscreen. And then, as you mentioned, the one that's marketed in the U.S. has on the packaging instead antioxidant day fluid. All of which is to say the brand is in hot water because it turned out that their beat shield star skew was not even protecting at the level it was purportedly protecting in its Korean labeling. Right. So the same kind of revelation happened around everyone's other favorite, like imported sunscreen, Perito. This also happened recently with a Neutrogena sunscreen. But Crave Beauty is the brand that is really taking the the hit now in terms of the backlash online. I mean, it's like it's and the reason we sound kind of tongue tied when we're trying to just break this down is because it's a confusing and complicated issue. Crave basically after the Perito drama had decided to submit its beat shield for extensive SPF testing. They didn't reveal exactly what score it did get in terms of SPF, but they did say that it did not meet the 55.3 SPF level that their Korean sunscreen said it had. And they decided to discontinue the product. They have a refund program. 
all of this happened. People were up in arms. And then, and this is sort of a good segue to our conversation we have today and our guest on the pod. So the drama around discontinuing and refunding for the Beat Shield sunscreen then became focused on the founder, Leah Yu, who had released some videos apologizing, but like people still felt that she wasn't being transparent because she wasn't releasing the actual SPF findings of these studies that they did. Then it turned into an entire video she posted and reaction from fans of the brand about the church that she's affiliated with, which feels like it's out of left field. But let me try to break it down for you. Leah Yu is a member of a church called C3, and she has posted on her Instagram about this church. If you or I or anyone goes on their website, you go to like, what do we believe? And one of their 10 things that they believe is that marriage is between a man and a woman. (laughs) Why do they have that as like the second click on their website? Because it's obviously very important to their belief system. That's incredibly homophobic. It's a damaging belief to many people that bought Crave, that were Crave fans. And then you look on the Crave Instagram and you start to see, oh, wait, a few months ago they were talking about queer, you know, BIPOC creators. And then they're also like the founder of Crave is a member of this homophobic church. People started freaking out. You know, all the Facebook groups are up in arms and for good reason, I think, taking her to task for speaking out of both sides of her mouth. But Annie and I actually ended up having a really interesting dialogue last night about, you know, can we hold people accountable for the churches that they're a member of? Is every single belief that the head of the church espouses also, by extension, the belief of every one of its congregants? Because at the end of the day, Leah, you had said that she was leaving the church and she was almost holding back tears in this video. And it just seemed like a really complicated and complex issue. And so we said, you know what, we need to call in the expert. So we've been trying to get our guest this week on the podcast for many, many months, not only because he is a wonderful human being and a friend of ours, but also because he is a former beauty editor. You know, he's like one of the guys from Boston who like made good, you know, like we kind of like we have a pride as former beauty editors in anyone who can start as a beauty editor and then host a religion podcast on Crooked Media. You know what I mean? He's really he's become an editor in chief of Teen Vogue. He has started his own Condé Nast publication called Them. He makes the home team of beauty editors proud. Because of the last news story that we just discussed, Nick and I, in talking about it as friends over DM, though we agree on most things, this one we were having a hard time with. So We needed Phil, really, because who else could say that they were a former beauty editor turned expert in religion and society? Mm-hmm. Unholier Than Thou is his podcast on Crooked Media. The whole first season is up wherever you get your podcast, so make sure to check that out. But so Phil could weigh in on the beauty industry of it all, but then also the religion of it all and the society of it all. And as a very vocal member of the LGBTQ community, he could also weigh in on sort of the idea that like a brand could, on the one hand, support and promote inclusivity, but then on the other hand, also have a founder who is a member of a church that has homophobic and anti-gay values. Anyway, without further ado, here is our interview with Phil Picardi. Hi, Phil. Hello. Thanks for having me. I had texted you yesterday to ask you about 
some drama in the skincare community that dovetailed nicely with your sort of investigations into religion and society. You just revealed that you're, you were accepted into Harvard Divinity School. I am moving to Cambridge in August, definitely working on some daddy issues in the <laughs> most formal sense of the word. So the conversation that we wanted to have with you, Phil, came out of a heated Instagram DM conversation between Annie and I. There is a beauty vlogger named Leah Yu who has, you know, within the skincare world, amassed a cult following, not only for her own content that she makes on her YouTube channel, but then for this brand that she created. There was sort of a cancellation moment of the brand for not being totally straightforward about the whole process of approval and marketing of an SPF product. Then the masses moved towards her personal life and her religion. And okay. specifically, what I sort of have, t have taken from reading Reddit and the comment section and her reactions to it is essentially she was a member of a church called C3, which has places in New York and L.A. And There's one right near me in, in the South really? Bay of L.A. Yep, yep. And it's sort of one of those wolf in sheep's clothing kind of churches where it's like, we're cool, we're hip. Our songs sound like pop songs, but like we're actually incredibly evangelical Christians who believe the marriage is between a man and a woman. And in fact, if you go on the C3 website, you, it takes one click to find out what their statement of beliefs are. And in their top 10 statement of beliefs, number 10 is essentially homosexuality is a sin. Right. So given that, people started commenting on Leah's own Instagram you know, about how could she be a part of this homophobic church and like how it was really fucked up. And then looking at the Crave Beauty Instagram, you would see posts celebrating, you know, queer black creators and the queer black experience and seemingly leveraging a queer friendly, inclusive message for the sake of the brand and ultimately sales. And I usually don't get pissed off at this kind of stuff, but I was just like, she should get fucking canceled. Like, you can't speak out of both sides of your mouth. Like, this is totally bullshit. And Annie, who was raised Methodist, was more, funnily enough, on your tip, which was your first reaction was like, then we have to cancel everyone. Everyone. Ev everyone. Anyone who goes to church. Basically, what happened was she released a series of kind of apology videos. One was for the beauty product, right? Sunscreen. Like, not, not meeting expectations. And then... As the internet is wont to do, people were really dogpiling on her, as Nick mentioned, calling her out for the problems with the formula. And then your business is unethical. And then you personally in your church now, you are homophobic, you know. And so this dogpile and this almost like doxing of her like personal life, I don't know if that's the exact correct term, but into her religion, which is something that's so personal to someone for me, it felt very icky. I even feel weird talking about it on the podcast because I feel like it's unfair. People that were raised in these churches, and even if you still attend these churches because you are getting something worthwhile out of it, that doesn't necessarily mean that you subscribe to all the doc the entire doctrine. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. that's why I felt like it was really unfair. And I feel like it freaks me out, honestly, that people took mm -hmm. it there with her. So this was our debate. And so yeah. we said, we need someone to settle this debate. And that person is going to be Phil Picardi. Got it. Okay. I'm not sure I can settle the debate <laughs> because I think in a way, both of you are right. And I want to talk a little bit about why I think both of you are right. So I'm, first, I'm going to start with my knee-jerk reaction, which was like, 
this woman is a part of a church that declares that they are homophobic on their website. Okay. Now, how many beauty companies are run by Catholic people or owned by Catholic people? And would you dogpile, to borrow Annie's word, on a Catholic person the same way that we are dogpiling on this person who goes to C3 Church? Now, let me just say, C3 Church is abominable. There is no question yeah. about it. There are articles written about like very nefarious practices within the church. Like there's trauma Instagram accounts where people are yes. talking about it, their personal experiences. And to cover my own yes. ass... I admittedly did not know any of this. I'm not a yes. proponent of C3 Church as part of this conversation or argument. Yes. No, I think that goes without saying in, in good faith. My point, you know, to Nick was after I read the 10 things on the C3 Church website and I read some of the articles was like, wait until they find out about the spotlight scandal that the Boston Globe unearthed about Catholicism, right? Where the Catholic Church has for decades been covering up and paying hush money to victims of pedophile priests, right? And has refused to apologize to the victims for decades. And by the way, this is an ongoing scandal, right? Or how the Catholic Church, the Vatican just issued a statement saying that they would refuse to bless same-sex unions, right? Or how the Catholic Church has hospitals and charities all over the world with anti-choice agendas that actually refuse contraception to women in developing nations, right? Or how the Catholic Church during the AIDS crisis of New York worked with the government of New York to refuse sexual education and contraceptive services to populations in need when AIDS was ravaging marginalized people. And by the way, this is just like a sampling of the right. evils right. of the Catholic Church. I could go on and on and on. There are many books written about it. Olga Segura, who's an amazing Catholic journalist, just wrote a book about the intrinsic racism of the Catholic Church and, and how Black Lives Matter and the Catholic Church intersect. I mean, we could go on. And like the church and colonial, I mean, like the whole, you know. Yes, why we are all here is because of forced conversion by Catholics of indigenous people and then the genocide and slaughtering and mass rape of indigenous people who were laid claim to this land before um, any of us white folks arrived here, right? That is just the legacy uh, of the church. And so while I believe that C3 Church is abominable and it's horrifying to think about all of the people who are either willingly or unwillingly participating in that agenda, I also am just like, wh what precedent does this set and how slippery of a slope could it possibly be? On the one hand, what Annie's saying is right. Methodism is a great example. The Methodist Church has had in, in recent years a whole slew of controversies around young Methodists who are saying we need to change our policy or official church doctrine around gay marriage. What Annie's saying is totally true. My grandmother died a devout Catholic. She also was the first grown adult in my entire family to accept me for being a gay man. Do I think my grandmother went to the grave a homophobe? Absolutely not. If you called my grandmother a homophobe, I would kick your fucking ass. Let yeah. me just tell you that right now. But did she go willingly to a homophobic church and pray and put money in the coffers of an openly homophobic institution? She did. And that sucks. And it's an argument that I still have with my dad to this day who continues to go to Catholic church regardless of the fact that he is fully well aware of all of the evils of Catholicism, but he yeah. still believes that there is a chance in salvation for the Catholic Church, and he's willing to stick it out. Now, I don't know where Miss Yu stands on any of these things. I have not watched her videos. It is very possible that she herself is not homophobic, and she wants her church to change their policies on homophobia. And if that is her stance, then okay. 
she still has to answer for why she continues to support a church that has other nefarious practices. And I think that's a spiritual journey that she should be allowed to go on without necessarily the public facing pressure. However, having said all of that, right, and we could also say the same of any religion ever, right? Many of the people who are dogpiling on Miss You may take issue with a lot of Jewish executives of beauty companies who may be Zionists, who may support Israel. And in sometimes some people believe that supporting Zionism or supporting Israel is supporting the displacement, marginalization of Black and Brown Palestinian folks. You can make a similar argument for any religion. I'm not trying to say that these are necessarily the views that I espouse. I'm just saying, theoretically, you could make the argument about any world religion in this case. Mm-hmm. And what I think it does, and why I take pause with it, not that I take issue with people not wanting to buy Crave Beauty products after seeing that she's a member of this church. Why I take pause is I just think it's like, at the end of the day, who will be left standing? <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's the issue that I take. However, where I think Nick is correct is if you are a gay person and you do not want to buy Crave Beauty products, you should absolutely not. We can spend our money wherever we want. This raises another interesting set of questions, with, which is basically, is any form of corporate activism not inherently hypocritical? Right. Every single post that a corporation makes that is activistic in nature could, of course, be deemed hypocritical, right? Even companies that have done an amazing job towards LGBTQ acceptance, many of those major corporations have PACs where employees are donating money to majorly right-wing, homophobic, transphobic people, right? We're about to go through gay pride. How many of the corporations who have pride collections have said anything about the string of anti-trans legislation that is literally advocating for the extermination of transgender children in America. The point is well taken that it's a slippery slope and where do you draw the line? But if you had to create a set of rules or guidelines for whether it's on the consumer side or on the corporate side, like where do, I mean, you have to set the bar somewhere. I would not put money to a brand that espoused actively homophobic views on their social media or harm things that I felt harmful directly to like the LGBTQ community, right? Mm-hmm. However, last week I went to the Beverly Hills Hotel owned by the Dorchester Collection, which is owned by the Sultan of Brunei, who like in Brunei has enacted Sharia law, which is horrific. It's including death by stoning, severing of body parts, flogging for abortion, adultery, homosexuality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I gave my money to the Beverly Hills Hotel. Mm-hmm. But I'm not giving my money to Crave Beauty. That was like right. the, what, that. That was sort of the decision that I made. What do you think it is about our industry that people hold the brands to a higher standard and actually do the research more when it comes to beauty and fashion choices versus, like Nick saying, he'll go to like a restaurant. They're not doing that same research for like restaurants. Well, because restaurants are not marketed as being transparent. You know what I mean? So like when Everlane came out with radical transparency, that's a big fucking claim, right? And they ended up eating their words a little bit in recent years when there's been different issues with regards to like their handling of certain employee issues, et cetera. But like, I think it's because you don't go to a restaurant expecting radical transparency and they're not marketing to be like most restaurants are not talking about inclusivity and the things that like the beauty industry loves to talk about. I think a part of what Annie's getting at is that these brands in in the fashion and beauty industries espouse a certain loyalty and aspiration that not necessarily 
a kind of loyalty that hotels, even restaurants, don't necessarily have. Right? Even with the, like, the choice of what you wear and the choice of what you put on your face, I think people, especially avid members of the beauty community, they take those choices very seriously. And people often mock people for how seriously they get loyally devoted to a brand. And I think that what what part of the problem is that these are brands and they also build communities on social media, mm-hmm. right, of loyal and dedicated followers and fans of the brand. And it's an interesting double-edged sword, right? Because you could really hoist yourself on your own petard by, as like you pointed out with Everlane, by committing to transparency or committing to inclusion, We've seen this with many beauty brands recently, L'Oreal Paris, Glossier, et cetera, mm-hmm. where they make a statement and then their followers and fans are, or employees are quick to point out, wait a minute, what about this? And what about that? And there's a difference between, because I, I am sort of resistant to the phrase cancel culture because of the way it's been employed by the right And the way that it sort of evades accountability in any way, shape, or form. And I do think that talking about it in the form of accountability is is really important. What I think is happening with Crave is a lot of these followers and fans are saying, we've supported you with our money, and now you owe us the accountability back. So why are you a member of this church when you are posting about LGBTQ acceptance? How do you reckon those things? Part of Miss Yu's controversy right now is that she established herself as a public figure who was willing to be accountable to her audience and to share with her audience, right? If she's a personality on YouTube, Mm -hmm. this is part and parcel of what it means to be a social media figure. So some of these questions are very fair to ask of her and to expect her to address. You can't sort of like siphon off this huge element of your life, which is spirituality and religion, when you've also made the rest of your life very available for people to dissect and participate in. And your brand and the monetary value of your brand is based on that loyalty of your fans and followers. That's a tricky position to be in. I felt similarly about the Glossier situation. And I happen to think Glossier actually handled it fairly well, like just looking at, at it from an outside perspective. But to think that employees and fans were holding you accountable and then you internalize that information and then you came up with a plan to publish and make transparent. I think that's a really good example. The question for us, though, as consumers is, why do we expect so much from these brands? Are our expectations too high? And if you don't feel like your expectations are too high, where are you taking your money? And how are you investing in each other and in community instead of always investing or spending your money with these different brands? I think if we spend this amount of effort that we do on Crave Beauty, on the anti-trans bill in Florida that just passed, right? And I'm not saying you can't do both. You absolutely can. I'm just saying, what do you feel at the end of the day is a wiser use of your investment time? Oh, it's and not about wise. I think it's about what's easier. <laughs> it's much easier to write a scolding comment on a Crave Beauty post than it is to like get active about overturning an anti-trans bill, right? Like, I think a lot of people are flummoxed about what do I even do? Like, do I write a letter to a senator? Like, what does this even mean? But versus, okay, I'm just going to call someone out and then post on Reddit and then screenshot an answer. And then like, that's, that's a much more tangible and easy to accomplish thing, right? I don't know. If you can do some of these makeup looks that these kids are doing on YouTube, (laughs) you can easily figure out how to get involved with your local chapter of the ACLU. Do you know what I mean? Like, I have seen these looks. They are complicated. These kids (laughs) are gifted. Okay? But you don't think that religion should be out of the, you know, you should use 
velvet gloves with when it comes to religion and, and one's relationship with God as it pertains to like the brand that they own. Because Annie, what I thought you were sort of saying, which I don't think you totally were, was this like religion and spirituality is such a personal thing and it's kind of off it's off limits. Again, going back to what Phil said earlier is like, where's the line? Where's the limit? It seems like the limit does not exist. So when I think about, okay, if you're digging into this person's personal life and bringing up religion, the knee jerk argument that I have to that is like that, again, is very personal, right? And then if it's not religion, then what is it next? Is it your family? What if a family member, well, I guess you don't choose your family. Okay. So say it's a friend. In theory, you choose your friends, right? Right. And I said, you are the company you keep. That was my answer. Exactly. I was yeah, like, yeah. So okay, if all so your friends are white supremacists, guess what? Knock, knock. You're a white supremacist. Okay. And we had a similar conversation with Kat Von D, right? So mm-hmm. obviously we can, as human beings, understand we have humanity. We have relationships with people. People are complicated. Yada, yada, yada. If you're a public figure with a brand, does that mean that you need to live your life in like this, in such a pious, like every decision that you make, every relationship that you have, we understand that these are complicated things, but I feel like that understanding of how complicated these relationships are, be it with God, be it with other people, be it with who knows what, is all that on the table to be criticized now because you're, you have a brand? Well, we talked about this with Kat Von D. Like, I have never taken a photo with someone who's wearing a swastika, right? And so it can't be on the internet. (laughs) No one can screenshot that picture because I've just never done it. So like there is a way that you can say like, if I'm living honestly and authentically as someone who is not an anti-Semite and does not associate with anti-Semites, then I have nothing to worry about being called an anti-Semite. I see what you're saying, Annie, but I also just struggle with this. And I struggle with this in my personal life, too, where I have people who are very close to me who are members of a church that would not have me as a member. I'll put it that way. And I kind of feel like you don't get me if you go to that church. Like you don't get you don't get the joy that it is to love me and be in my life if you are a member of that church. And then I have friends or very close friends who are have a much more complicated relationship with that. And also maybe not the privilege and the luxury to say that or to feel that. And who are like, well, it's much more complicated than that. So, Phil, like when you were talking about your grandmother, I totally understand that it's like there's nuance to it because it's easy for me to say like, well, then grandma, like you don't get to love me. You don't get to be in my life if you go to the Catholic Church, because like those two things are those are irreconcilable. And what I would say to that is it's your choice, right? Again, it all comes back to like, what feels good for you? Because you don't need to support Crave Beauty. You don't need to support it out of pity or out of feeling like she's getting quote unquote canceled. No one is forcing you to buy her products or to follow her brand on Instagram. So if you choose to take this information as it is, unfollow and divest and support a new beauty brand and find new products to be using, great. That is your right as a consumer. Go do that. In your case, Nick, if you choose that you feel like your friends attending this church is their endorsement of homophobia and you feel like they are betraying their relationship and allegiance to you by continuing to support a homophobic institution, you do not have to be their friend. Yeah. And you can live with that with a very clear conscience. Again, it is your choice. To be clear, the thing about canceled that's so frustrating is that it implies that this person is universally going to be blacklisted. There is a very good chance that misused brand will be just fine. It may not be yeah. the star that it once was, but that she will be able to keep the lights on and that she will keep making videos. Maybe she'll go dark for a little bit and she'll come back and people will choose to keep 
engaging with her. Mel Gibson still gets cast in movies. This is right. And while I don't agree with that, and while I would not be supporting Crave Beauty based on what I know, I also think that there are people who really won't care or who they'll care in the moment right now. And then they'll think about it and reflect on it and say, you know what, though? I really love that cleanser. So let me go buy some more. Or I actually do want to see what she's up to. So Phil, like if we were going to create a guidebook for brand founders in which there were sort of some strong suggestions of how to maybe not operate in private, but also, but maybe it's just about how to present in public as it pertains to religion or anything like that. Like what would be the guidelines? Would one guideline be if you are a member of the Catholic church, then on your brand channel, you should not be talking about inclusivity because that's hypocritical. Or is that not a rule? I would say no. I would say that that's, you know, it's impossible to say. My question is, who's walking the walk and not just talking the talk? And so I think with Crave, what her fans are trying to point out here is that she's just talking the talk. So if she's just talking the talk, what do these posts now mean that we once deemed as valuable? Because we assumed they were part of her core personal beliefs and values. What I would say to any brand is... What is actually a part of your belief system versus what is the trendy black square that you are posting? And when you post something in defense of or in support of a community, do you feel like you have demonstrated support for that community in your life, in your hiring practices, in your campaign casting practices, in your behind the scenes work, or in your charitable contributions? And if you don't, why not, right? Why haven't you supported black people? Why haven't you said Black Lives Matter? What you're asking people to do is really interesting because having been on the inside of brands, like what you're asking people to do is pause and think yes. about it. And, and that's I not think, too much to ask. When no, we're it's not. About the, it's the, certainly the survival not. of marginalized people. I 100% agree, but I'm just saying having been in the room when like certain events have happened and whatever, it feels like you have five seconds to make the decision about like, are we going to... Like, do we post it? You know, like, it's this very frantic thinking around, like, do we comment? Do we not? Do we put our, do we go back to regular scheduled programming on Instagram? Do we not? Like, do we put the black square? Do we not? Like, that is the real vibe in these rooms. And what you're asking people to do is to say, like, wait, like, you have to ask some questions. Then you have to ask some more questions based on the answers to the first questions. And that could be like a weeks long process of examination. Sometimes in crisis PR, there is a window, right, of your ability to respond to a situation without looking disingenuous. So I understand that there's pressure. The one thing I would say is you're probably going to answer to pressure better if your room of people and decision makers at your company is already composed of a diverse set of backgrounds and experiences. Yep. I've been in those rooms many times in my publishing career when it's a corporate scandal or a corporate issue or something. And I know what the room looks like. It's a bunch of bald, balding white men. Nothing against bald people, by the way. I don't want to stigmatize. I'm just saying I'm trying to indicate age here. It's a person who makes half a million dollars a year with no real care in the world about what actually happens here. They may be stressed in the moment, but they'll be fine. Some of them have yachts or their own helicopters. Like, I mean, the ranges of wealth here are disturbing. And their employees are often making fifty to $60,000 a year, if that. Mm-hmm. And the employees are the people who are going to face the brunt of the public scandal. The worst, because who handles the social media accounts? 
You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Who has to send the press release? Who has to be the public face to respond to the pressure? And so these are complicated dynamics that are at play, but it, it does show you how white supremacy is intrinsically a part of every institution that is made. And that includes religion. There's a difference between spirituality and religion. Spirituality, we are all born with. We are all born with the capability to pray, to connect to the divine, however you find or define the divine, to be clear. Religion is man-made, and anything man-made, whether that is a church or a corporation, is either corrupt or corruptible at the very least. And those are the differences. So one thing that you just said that I thought was really interesting is like you're talking about you and I have both been in these rooms. We've seen the demographic. We've seen exactly how these decisions are getting made. When you're a tiny, and then this sort of taking back to the beauty industry, like when you're a tiny brand and you're a startup and to the consumer, I'm holding Estee Lauder accountable in the same way that I'm holding Sue's Botanicals accountable, right? And like there is a, a huge economic difference between the decisions that an Estee Lauder, a publicly traded company is making versus like Sue's Botanicals, which might be three people and bootstrapped. And like, because everyone has an Instagram and Instagram is sort of like a levelizer, like there's a maybe an assumption that like everyone can be held to the same level of accountability and diversity and inclusion. And not that we all shouldn't be, but when your entire company is three people, it's a different story than if your company is 30,000 people. Sure. By the way, to clarify, I'm not sure necessarily that the scandal that swept L'Oreal Paris last year is comparable to what Crave Beauty is going through right now. I mean, that was a far-reaching and With Monroe Burgoff. Yeah, my friend Monroe, yeah. who is who's incredible, but whose life was dramatically altered, who dealt with PTSD from the harassment of the British press yeah. that L'Oreal really laid at her feet, but who now is on the board of L'Oreal. I mean, talk about a success story. And I do think that was just the first step in addressing a lot of yep. the wrongs of that specific controversy. For a brand that is three people and an upstart, I'm not sure that the social media audience is expecting this test case of Sue's Botanicals, hypothetical Sue's Botanicals, to be uh, the same kind of contributor to racial causes or to social justice causes that like L'Oreal should be with their yeah. billions of dollars in profit. So just to give an example to like right size that, I think the other question too is like talking about spirituality in this way, if you did survive the last year without some real soul searching about what your life looks like, what books are on your bookshelf, what books you've actually read on your bookshelf, because there was that awful report recently that a bunch of white people didn't pick up their anti-racist books from their bookstores and they were clogging the shelves of a lot of local bookstores and black owned really? bookstores. Yep. I think spiritually speaking, if you have not looked at the past year and really looked at, especially as, as white folks, if we have not looked at how our own lives are reflections of our values and how some things in our lives need changing, I do think that not to say that you failed a test, but certainly you've missed the point. You've missed a message. Yeah. And if we're talking about being connected to the divine and being connected to the spiritual, I always say this, it is time to look at what your photos of your friend groups look like. It is time to look at who are the people in your office and what those offices look like and what the composition of them looks like. Who are you outsourcing work to? And again, how is that a reflection of your values, right? There are many ways in which to materially show up for things. And I think we tend to do what is easiest Unfortunately, what is easiest when you grow up with, like I did, you know, an immense amount of privilege 
What's easiest is to do what looks like you or what you know your parents did. And we really have to break the chain in order to actually make an effective and spiritual change, because that's what society is calling for. We are seeing mass mourning and grieving here in our world, not just due to COVID, but also due to police brutality, due to hate crimes against Asian Americans, due to legislative enacted violence, which is really thinly veiled eugenics of, of transgender people. And all of us have a responsibility to better think about how we show up in our lives for those communities. And that's why it does matter what you put in your medicine cabinet. That does matter to me. It does matter what clothes you wear on your back. It does matter who you decide to support. And so I think that, again, it all comes down to like, do you feel spiritually called in this moment to remove Crave from your routine? And if so, that's great. That's okay. Please do so. Do you feel spiritually called to call her to accountability and see what she says before you maybe make the comment or before you stop buying her products or whatever? Also fine. I think these are personal decisions we all have to make, but they are definitely hard conversations to have. And the last thing I would say is, if you are a small beauty company and you are afraid of some of these conversations, that's also okay. Because maybe we are getting a taste for once of what it is like to live in marginalized bodies and to feel the consequences that other people have felt that we've been exempt from. Maybe accountability is something that we as white folks are just getting used to. And I think that's something that I would encourage us to lean into. The fear of accountability is not helpful. Confronting what it is about you or your life or your business that could be held accountable in a way that would not reflect well on you is a healthy and good exercise to do and to face and confront. Phil, I think you are so fucking intelligent. So this next question is (laughs) maybe dumbing down the conversation. But what is in your skincare drawer right now? What are you? Like, oh just my us, like, God. We're I just going to go just, right there, huh? We're going right there. And there's no easy okay. way to get there. Got it. Okay. I am using He's the like Dior Crave Life Beauty. Cleanser, the foaming cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. Yes, I use the Dior Life Cleanser. My toner, I use Biologique Recherche P50. For my serum, I use Shani Darden's Retinol Reform at Night. For daytime, I use Tatcha's Luminous Hyaluronic Serum, which is really lovely. For my eye cream, I use Dior again, Capture Total. And then moisturizer really varies on what kind of makeup I'm wearing. If I'm not wearing makeup, I'll use Lena Hansen's Global Face Serum. She's so lovely. And I think that's a beautiful product. I've written about it many times. But sometimes I'll use Sisley all day, all year. Are you an SPF guy? So I have psoriasis. So it's actually part of my dermatological recommendation that I forego SPF while I'm experiencing a breakout. And currently I am experiencing a breakout. So beyond Hmm. skincare products, what I need help with is like recommendations on like energy where do you get like how do you sleep at night like how do you get eight hours is it really working out like drinking water like what and how do you have energy during the day like can you have a meeting at 4 p.m no the meetings at 4 p.m i really dislike doing i do i feel like i have a 3 p.m cutoff it's a good rule but yeah i do definitely especially since moving to la i value being able to like have that east coast turn off at 4 p.m here and just enjoy your evening and like order dinner and have a nice time. Supplements? I take a lot of supplements. I take like an adaptogen complex. Which one? My acupuncturist gives it to me. I get get acupuncture once a week. It's a wonder for sleep and for energy. I will say I do drink a lot of water and I do work out five days a week throughout my entire career. I always sleep eight hours a night. If I don't get eight hours of sleep, I'm a nightmare. But you don't take like a nighttime, any kind of nighttime sleep aid? 
If I feel like I need to, I'll do the Foria CBD supplement at night. It's a tincture and I'll take that, which actually is lovely. It really helps. You know that they also have an anal THC suppository. I use it often. I do too. I was like expecting it to blow my mind in a way that it didn't, but really, I wanted to like do more. And I was like expecting like rainbows shooting out of my ass, but that's not what I got. Oh, I just feel more open, which is, is very helpful in certain situations. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes. So I really enjoy it. I feel like it relaxes me in a way that makes pleasure a lot more enjoyable. Would it help me sleep? <laughs> The anal ones? They do have a vaginal suppository for yeah. um, menstrual cramps and stuff. You could try. But with the CBD drops that you take, I'm assuming orally, mm-hmm. do they give you crazy dreams? Yes. But I, I, I work with a Jungian analyst, so I actually keep a dream journal. And I talk to my therapist about my dreams every week. Oh, my God. So you're just, you're just like working on being healthy. Damn. Now that we've had a chance to work things out with Phil, I think I see things a little bit more from your perspective. And I see things a little bit more from your perspective. We should do product of the week. I don't think I've talked at all about this product on the podcast, but I I have talked about when I went to Kelly Levesque, the nutritionist for a consultation. She like rocked my world with all the things that she was telling me to take. Mm -hmm. One of the things was an electrolyte drink which helps replenish electrolytes when you are doing sports or if you're just dehydrated, called Element, L-M-N-T. And it's like a packet of powder that you put into water and it it just promises like rapid rehydration. Mm. And she's an investor, I believe, in Element. And so for those of you who are saying, hmm, like that's interesting that she's promoting the things she makes. I've been drinking it for months and it really does help during a workout or to just like make you feel instantly quenched. But because there is that wrinkle to it, I would like to also promote another electrolyte drink, which was recommended to me by none other than Molly Young, who is a writer and a brand strategist in New York. And she and I were talking the other day and I was telling her about Element. And she was saying that there is this product called Liquid IV, which again is like a packet that you pour into a drink. And she said, if you pour this into water and you shake it up in the first thing in the morning and you like chug it, it's like more intense than a cup of coffee. It just like the like amount of like hydration and sort of energy you feel from being hydrated is like none other. And so I've been on the liquid IV train for the last few days. And I have to say she's right. Like I trust Molly with my life. It does have sugar in it. So like the element stuff doesn't have any actual sugar and is a little bit more clean for lack of a better term. But liquid IV really gets the job done and gives you a little bit of a jolt in the morning. So I guess my product of the week is electrolyte powders. And if I had to choose between them, I would not be able to. Liquid IV, did we talk about this on the podcast? They were acquired by Unilever. Oh, we did, I think, a long time ago. Yeah, it was back in September. Yeah, we did. Okay, well then look at that. It all, everything comes back around. What do you got for us, Annie? I have something for your feet. It's sandal season. Well, it's always sandal season for you. Although, well, you just sent me two links to some sandals that I didn't really understand. They were really furry. Oh, horaches. Yeah, I found them on Instagram. A woman in Mexico City makes these sandals with really furry sheepskin out of like 
sheepskins that would normally be discarded because they were like imperfect. Anyway, you can buy like a pair of sandals. They're like these really fluffy sandals and mine come in a few days. Anyway, less about me, more about you. Okay. So you might want to get what I'm about to talk about to wear with your new discarded sheepskin sandals. It is the Earth Therapeutics Diamond File and it is a foot file or like, you know, a callus file. Like the pet egg? Well, so I have Remember never... Remember those pet eggs that were like a cheese grater that you would like just like hack at your foot? It's not unlike a cheese grater that you would hack at your foot with. But I feel like this is maybe a little bit more... Um, well, there's two sides and it makes perfect sense to use in the shower, slightly bent down. It has a long handle. Incredible engineering. Again, two sides. One is more coarse. One's finer. I will say like my advice for any type of filing, be it on your calluses, on your fingernails, on your ridges. Or on your Parmesan. Is to start coarse and remember to go over it the same area afterwards with the finer side. Otherwise, you're just going to end up with some, you know, coarsely graded dead skin. Yeah. So if you really want smooth feet, heels, toes, then start with the coarse side, then go to the fine side. I'm buying this right you now. Buy, what is it it's called? It's actually on sale. It's called the Earth Therapeutics Diamond File. It is on Ulta.com and it is on sale for $9.75. 271 reviews. Don't lie. Five stars. People, I need people this. love this, this is thing. amazing. I used to buy this little foamy like pumice thing called like the Mr. Pumice bar. But mm-hmm. I was like, I don't like that. I have to like throw these away over time. It doesn't seem very eco. So this thing, obviously you keep, I think you should boil it every so often to get all the like butt fungus and stuff out of it. And that is my product of the week. <sighs> I love you know that. what I don't think people should be using anymore? Baby feet. Oh, is that the one where like, it's like the mask that you put on your feet and then like for days your feet like slowly die yeah but i find that my feet are never really softer afterwards also we should do an episode about feet because you know how there are those like foot soaks and that like your foot like the water's like brown or green and it's like look at all the toxins that came out of my feet like what's with that bullshit anyway for another day but i'm in i'm literally getting it as we finish this recording so i imagine everyone else is going to be too okay so i have a reader product of the week yes and it's one that i co-sign here we go because this person didn't give me permission to use her name, and maybe she doesn't want people to know that she listens to this podcast. So she wrote in saying, I have a reco for product of the week. It's Arm & Hammer Proxicare toothpaste. It has baking soda and peroxide, which makes it have a pretty strong taste, but I've never had whiter teeth after only using this toothpaste for a couple of years now. If I'm looking for a deeper whitening treatment before a night out or an event, I'll use my finger to apply a thick layer over my top and bottom teeth let it sit for five to 10 minutes, and the result is better than any whitening strips I've used. Plus, it's pretty cheap, around $3 per tube. So you're, mm. not only are you getting a product of the week that is actually my favorite toothpaste of all time, I get the healthy gums kind, but she gave us a- You're getting like a whitening treatment. She gave us a hack. She gave us a product hack. And I don't know that we have really scratched the surface on product hacks on this podcast. Maybe we should do a whole hack episode. I think that's a good idea. As always, thank you so much for listening. Eyewitness Beauty is produced by Jessamine Molly of Seaplane Armada. Our theme music is by Danny Prezant, and our cover art is by Simon Abronowitz. You can follow us on Instagram at Eyewitness Beauty. You can write to us at hi at eyewitnessbeauty.com. And what else? We need more products of the week ideas, and we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Have a great weekend. Stay hydrated.